verse 1. When you got it, say so. And it says, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. God, we love you, and we thank you so very much, Lord, for being with us in this place as we have worshipped your name. Holy Spirit, we surrender to you, even as we sang, Lord God, we do surrender our hearts, we surrender our minds, our will, our desires, Lord God, we yield unto you today. And we ask you, Lord God, for these next few moments as we will be in your word that you would captivate our hearts and captivate our minds, Lord God, that you would remove distractions, Lord God, that you would remove thoughts that would try to hinder us from focusing in on what you will be speaking to our lives, my God. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying unto your church. And Lord God, not just the ability to hear, but Father God, the will and the faith and the power to do, Lord God, that we would be doers of your word as well. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We ask you to be glorified today. In Jesus' name, someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so we continue on in our series in the book of Acts. And again, just, to, just as a reminder, because this is kind of new to us, this is only the second week that we've been doing this, but those outlines are for those of you that are in connect groups, and they're for anybody in the building, but specifically for those of you who are in connect groups, it's very important that you follow along, that you take notes, that you write down questions that you may have. Um, that you answer as many questions in there that I answer. I will tell you this, last week I answered um, all of the questions that were there. This week I'm not answering all the questions. I actually put some questions in there for you to be able to go home and dig into the Word a little bit more, and that way you could answer some of the questions. And so that is by design because I want you to have good, edifying conversation. And although we are preaching through the book of Acts, we, we know that there is more to the Bible than just the book of Acts. But the principles that we find within the book of Acts we want to make sure that we exhaust those through the scriptures and so that's why I asked some of those questions so make sure you take notes and also that you go home and these questions are meant to help you in those conversations but also so that way you can reflect on the word of God that you can reflect on what we're speaking of and you have an opportunity on the back of those outlines that you have as well there is a section for you to take notes so if it's something that um, you just want to write down that's there for you um, so please fill those out thoroughly and make sure that you answer any questions and your connect group leader will assist you as well when you're in your connect group if you have any questions and if you have any questions for me some of the some um some of you have emailed me after the preaching and you've asked me to email you the outline to my notes and I'm more than happy to do that if you just let me know that you need those I can get those to you which will kind of help you because I know that I do talk fast amen you know, I know, I know sometimes I'd be rolling and, you know, and, and I don't pause and you're like, okay, I can't write it fa that fast and I do apologize, but um, I'll try to slow it down a little bit. Amen. So for in the, in the book of Acts chapter 12, chapter 12 gives us another picture of the intense persecution. This is in your outline there of the intense persecution um, against the church. 
I think it's important to note the transition from religious opposition to now political leader opposing the church. And I'll talk about that a little bit more under my first point. But I want you to realize that the original persecution that was coming against the church was coming from the religious leaders of the day. They didn't want the gospel to be preached. They didn't want the name of Jesus to be preached. They didn't want that. And so what happened was they were the ones who were initiating the persecution. By this time, like we said a couple of weeks ago, we're about 10 to 14 years into church history now. And so we realize that from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this is about 10 10 to 14 years later. This is very important because I think I told you about a documentary that I watched um, a, a, a couple of months ago. And in that documentary, the guy is trying to disprove the Bible and trying to disprove how Christianity became and all of these things that he's trying to disprove. And one of the things that he does is he goes outside, and I'm not sure if it was just a random church service or if it was a church conference or something like that, but I do know that he was speaking to Christians, and it looked to me when I saw the video as though they were people that were getting ready to go to church. It looked like it was in a parking lot somewhere. I can't guarantee that, but what I can say is I know for sure he was talking to Christians. He was talking to people who said that they knew their Bible, and he asked them a question. He said, how did the Bible or how did the church grow during, during, during these like 30 or 40 year period from, you know, like, like 30, you know, um, A.D.? all the way until about 70 AD. And every Christian that was there was stumped by the question. They're like, oh, well, I don't know. And I'm like, really? Did you not read the book of Acts? That's the period of time that the book of Acts covers. Did you know that, Christians? That's the period of time that the book of Acts covers. It covers that. So how did the book of Acts, how, how did the church become what it is today? Well, the way that it got from Jesus' resurrection to not where it is today, but where it got furthered was through the apostles preaching through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see about 10 to 14 years of history here. In the beginning, religious persecution. Later on, we see some, um, some, some a political persecution that occurs. And like I said, we'll deal with that a little bit more in point one. The second thing here is that the enemy hates the gospel. Say that with me. The enemy hates the gospel. He hates the gospel. He does not want people to hear the gospel. He does not want me to preach the gospel. He doesn't want preachers and churches to preach the gospel. He would rather that we just get up here and give you like five points to the best life or something like that. Hello? He doesn't want us to preach the gospel to you because the gospel brings conviction. The gospel makes us look at, okay, where is our dependence? Where is our trust? Where is our hope? It brings us back to that place where I can do all five things and my life can still be going messed up. Hello, somebody. I can be doing those 10 things or 13 things, 95 things. I don't know however many lists you want to make. The point of the matter is I can be doing all of that and things can still be going wrong. And so what do I do? I must be a person who depends on the gospel. And the other thing is this, is that I can be doing those 95 things in my life and everything can be going great just like I wanted to. Like my job is going well, my marriage is going well, my children are doing great, everything in life looks wonderful, and I still need the gospel. I still need the gospel. The devil don't want us to preach the gospel. The devil does not want us to live out the gospel. And so he hates it. And the thing that we've got to realize is that he is no respecter of persons. Okay? He will use anyone who is available to oppose the message of the gospel. And what is the purpose? It is to try to keep the people of God from remaining on mission with Jesus. That is the purpose of all the hardship and all the persecution. It's not just because the enemy wants us to have a bad day. Hello, somebody. 
It's not just because he wants us to feel bad. It's because he wants us to get off mission. He wants us to think, well, once I get all of this stuff right, then I can be a Christian. Or once I get all these things right, then I can start preaching the gospel. Or once I get all these things in order, then I can be the evangelist that I'm called to be. No, the Bible teaches us that we are supposed to, as we go, as we are getting things right, as things are working themselves out, we do not stop preaching the gospel. But the enemy wants us not to have the total mindset that we should have as Christians. So what happens is hardship comes in different ways, shapes, and forms. Different situations arise. And what do we have to do? We need to make a decision. Am I going to be focused on Jesus and maintain my purpose? Not ignoring my situation, but trusting that he's in control of everything. That's the question that we have to ask ourselves, and that's the reason why we need to hear the gospel. Because the gospel is not just something that beats us up. There's moments in the gospel where it beats us up. But the gospel is also something that builds us up. It is what builds our faith, it is what is builds our trust, and it is what builds our hope in Jesus. And so our trust and our hope must be firmly fixed on Jesus. He must be the source of our identity and the center of our worship. The cause of our community and the catalyst for our mission. I'll say that again. He must be the source of our identity. Our identity cannot be locked up in our, in our successes nor in our failures. It cannot be locked up in that. Our identity must be found not philosophically, not theoretically, not just in my mind where I say, yeah, I understand my identity in Je- is in Jesus, but that but shows me that my identity is not really in him. And so when we talk about living this gospel-centered life and living a life that is all for the glory and honor of Jesus, my identity must be found in him. And out of that identity is where my worship comes from. And what I mean by that is I don't worship God because I'm trying to get to him. I worship God because he has already brought me into relationship with him. I worship him out of that identity. I'm not trying to prove something. I'm not trying to gain something. I am simply trying to acknowledge what God has done in my life and give him glory, honor, and praise. And out of that, we've been talking about community. We talk about our connect groups, and our connect groups are for that. It is to express the image of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. They dwell in community. So what that means is that we should be dwelling and growing in community one with the other. In our day, this is tough. In our day, this is not so easy. It's a, lot, it's a lot easier just to show up on Sunday morning. Amen? Show up on Sunday, lift your hands in worship, clap your hands, worship, bless God, have a good time. But then to grow in community, that takes, that, that takes time, that takes effort, that takes some sacrifice. you got to adjust your schedule. Hello, somebody. we got all kinds of things that are going on. And, and, and listen, it is important that we realize that Jesus, and we, when we try to reiterate this as much as possible, Jesus did not just die to save us to himself, but he died and saved us to one another. He didn't just die and save us to himself. He died and he redeemed us into a community of believers, and he expects us to grow in relationship one with the other. And we shouldn't wait for an invitation, even though we invite you every week. Amen? We want you to be part of community. We want you to be part of relationship with other believers because it is a good thing because God ordained it that way. Amen? Amen. He should be the cause of our community, but he should also be the catalyst for our mission. He is the reason for. He is the one that moves us forward. He is the one that propels us. He is our motive, not our situation, not our circumstances. It is him. He has to be that. And this morning, what we're going to talk about in the title of the message that you see there on your outline is the gospel is greater than. And in the face of hardship, it is easy to lose sight of the greatness of the gospel. 
And no matter what I go through, no matter what I face, no matter what you go through, no matter what you face, my hope is that you will remember the gospel is greater than anything that you're facing. That Jesus' work and what he has done for us shows the greatness and the magnitude of our God. And so we can trust and hope in him and know that his purposes and his plans will be accomplished in our lives. And we just walk with him. Amen? And so the first thing I ask you to repeat after me at point one is persecution should be expected, not feared. Persecution should be expected, not feared. Now let me explain this. Jesus promised his disciples, not only did Jesus promise his disciples, but so did the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, later on we'll get there and you'll see it. He encourages the church to continue on. And his encouragement in part is telling them how much hardship that they are going to go through. That's the type of encouragement that he comes and he brings to them. Reminding them that they are going through hardship, that they're going through difficulty, and that is all part of the process. See, because here's what happens to us. When we go through hardship and we go through difficulty, we, when, when, when our faith is tested, what we automatically begin to do, I don't know about you, but I, but I can say this for most people that I've had conversations with, haven't had a conversation with everyone in this room, but most people that I've had conversation with, and I know myself, right away when I start going through something difficult, the first question is like, what did I do wrong? Is God mad at me? Some of us, we start to rewind and we think about sins that we committed even before we met Jesus. And we're like, that's the reason why I'm going through this, because I did that. And now listen, I firmly believe we reap what we sow. Amen? I love my father's quote. He says, you know, you can't pray for crop failure. Hello, somebody. What he means is if you sowed it, it's going to grow. Right? Sin hurts relationships. Amen? Amen? And so there's certain things that are going to happen, certain things that are going to occur in our life, and it is not because God is mad at us, it is because we're disobedient to him, and so we experience certain consequences. But here's the thing, God is not up there in heaven. If you are a child of God, glory to his name, let me encourage you. If you are a child of God this morning, if you love Jesus and you have called on his name in faith, he's not up there waiting to give you a beat down. Hello? He's not up there waiting to strike you dead. He wants to love you. He, the, the wrath of God, and we'll talk about this in a moment a little bit more, but the wrath of God was placed on the cross on Jesus. And so no longer is he coming at you with wrath and judgment. He's coming at you with love, and he wants to develop you as a father wants to develop his children. Now listen, if you don't know Jesus, that's a different story. If you don't know him, it's different. If you don't know him, sadly... Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are on your way with a collision course with the wrath of God. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, listen, don't take the other exhortation to encourage you. Don't take, if you don't know Jesus, God is not up there. Listen, the wrath of God is going to be experienced by all of those who do not put their faith in Jesus. That is a reality. And so what happens is Jesus promised us persecution. He promised his disciples that they would be persecuted, that they would even be killed for the gospel. So here's the thing. We should be prepared to experience persecution on some level for the name of Jesus. Let me qualify this. This is not people just being mean to you. This is not people just not liking you just because. This is you trying to live your life for Jesus and people not liking you because of Jesus. That is what constitutes biblical persecution. Now, hardship, hardship is hardship. It can just be people that are difficult. But when we're talking about biblical persecution, we should experience that. 
When I decide that I'm going to live my life for Jesus, when you decide you're going to live your life for Jesus, when you decide that you are not going to bow and you're not going to be like everyone else, you're not going to fit in, when you make that decision, what you are doing is you are setting yourself up to not be liked for the name of Jesus. That's just a reality. Now listen, there's some people that are going to like you. There's some people that are going to come to you and they're going to want you to pray for them when they go through difficulty because maybe they're on the fence, but there are going to be some people that are just plain out not going to like you just because of Jesus. And that's okay. And here's what I want, want you to understand when I say that persecution should be expected, not feared. While the fear of suffering to death is natural. Listen, I don't think anybody in this place is like, cool, I just want to suffer to death. Right? Like, like you know, I mean, if, I, we, the, the youth, they were, they were in... Um, you service on Friday, and Minister Juan, as he, as, he, as, he, as he preaches, he allows the youth that are there, you know, to go ahead and blurt out questions, and he'll answer them, and that's cool. And they were talking about, well, what about if someone spits on you? Right? That, that was one of the questions, right? Well, what, what if someone spits on you? Like, what do you do? And he didn't ask this question, but I'll ask the question. The question is, why'd they spit on you? Because if they spit on you because you're preaching Jesus to them, you don't punch them in the face. I'm just saying, listen, if, if, if I'm preaching Jesus to someone and they spit on me, I can't retaliate. Why? Because they did it as a persecution of Jesus. Right? The most important question in, in, in the conversation is, why did they do it? Are y'all with me? I'm not going to say anything else because y'all got to make your own decision. But here's what the Bible says. All right? I'm letting y'all know. If you get spit on because someone was, you were talking to someone about Jesus, man, you got to turn the other cheek straight up. No questions asked. You get stopped. Someone stops you in the face. What do you do? Be like, yo, oh, yo, I only got two cheeks, yo. I'm saying I got one, two, then it's a wrap. No. I don't think that that was the point, Okay. But if that's how you feel, I understand. At least give them the second shot because it's going to shock them, right, that you turn your other cheek on them and they're going to be like, what's wrong with this person? And they may walk away. But anyway, here is the point. The point is when you are persecuted for the glory of Jesus, you don't retaliate. You can't because then that brings dishonor to his name. Are you with me? This is what Jesus is talking about. And I'm not, I'm not going to get into the whole topic of protecting your family. I believe we should, we should protect our families and all of that. But here's the thing. When you think about the suffering that could take place, when you think about, you know, you read, you read um, material like Boxer's book, uh, a box, Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs, and you read this book, and what it is, it, it is a collection of all of the martyrs that they, you know, that they could, you know, re- record about them, and you see stories like one, there was one king, and what he used to do with Christians is he used to make Christians their chandelier, his chandelier in his, in his castle. What he would do is he would get them and he would wrap them up in this, in this thing and he would light them on fire. And he would pull them up into the middle of the castle, wherever it was, and that's how they would die. And at night, that's how he would go to sleep, listening to their screams. Anybody want to die like that? I'm just saying, I would be a, I'm afraid to die like that. I don't want to die like that. So that's natural. But here is, what, here is the issue. Paralysis and proclamation of the gospel, that's not natural. We're going to fear the suffering part, but we shouldn't be paralyzed to communicate the gospel because we are so afraid of what the consequence may be. Are you with me? So we should expect persecution. We should expect hardship. We thank God because we live in a nation that those things are not allowed at this point. 
But here's what I want you to understand. This is the reason why I said it's so important for us to recognize that it went from religious persecution to political persecution. Because here's what your Bible teaches. Our Bible teaches that there is coming a time when there will be a one-world government, a one-world currency, and a one-world religion. Y'all know that, right? This is not some conspiracy theory that someone came up with somewhere, okay? There's some conspiracy theories that are around that, so I'm not going to get into all of those. But here's the thing. This is not a conspiracy thing. This is what the Bible teaches, that there is coming a day that there is going to be one government, there is going to be one world government, one world currency, one world religion. And here's why this is so important for us to realize, because what happened in these days is that Rome, you know, was, was being, they were running the show here. And in the beginning, they didn't have, you know, Rome didn't have these issues with the Christians. There wasn't a problem with them. But suddenly, this King Herod rises up on the scene. And, and the reason why, this is what happened, and this, you got to pay attention to this. He didn't persecute the Christians because he didn't want to hear the name of Jesus. That wasn't his goal. The reason why he persecuted the Christians is because he was trying to earn favor with the Jewish community. He was trying to gain a good following. He was trying to gain the favor of the people. Are y'all hearing me? They were more concerned with, he was more concerned with consensus and getting people on his side than governing correctly. How do you think all this stuff is going to happen? They want to get everyone to have peace. They want to get everyone to be together. I'm talking about your Bible and what it says about this one world religion and one world government. What's going to happen is anybody who opposes stuff, right, then you know what? Then you got a problem. That's why the Bible talks about this mark of the beast. Like if you're down with this, then, you know, you're going to have to be marked because we need to know that you're on our side. And if not, then you're going to die. That's what that's what the scriptures teach. Right? This, this is what the Bible teaches. Now, here's the thing. Many modern theologians, they believe that the one world religion is already making its way on the scene in the form of secular humanism. But those of you that secular humanism, that's, that's a lot of the teaching that is in our days, you know, where you just like, you know, it teaches this plurality. Like there's a bunch of ways to God. Like you can get to God, you know, whoever, you know, if you're, if you're, um, you're a Muslim, you're worshiping the same God as Christians. If you're a Jewish, you're worshiping the same God as Christians. If you're Mormon, you're worshiping the same God as Christians. Everybody's worshiping the same God. They just call them by different names. They call it plurality. God would call it idolatry. Because there is one true God. There is one true God according to the scriptures. And so this secular, it doesn't just stop there on the religious side, but it talks to you about, you know what, if it's good for you, if you feel it, if it, if, if it feels good, then it's not wrong. It's right for you. So it, it may not be right for me. So for me, it may not be right for me to commit adultery, but for someone else, that's okay. They won't say that, though. But, but, but that's the teaching. See, you can't, see, here's the thing. You can't pick and choose that. You, you can't just apply that here and not apply it there. No, but they apply it. They pick and choose what they want to do. Why? Because it's their belief system. So it's still wrong. But who says adultery is wrong? God says adultery is wrong. He's the one that says, you know, he's the one that, that, that teaches us. You know, he, t- he talks to parents, right? Doesn't get like all deep in about child abuse and stuff like that. But he's the one that tells parents that we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't overwhelm our kids, right? So that's like, that's like light. He's not, he's not even talking about beating our kids. I know I joke a lot, right? And, I, and I'll say, like, you got to beat the hell out of your kids, right? I say that sometimes. And, so, you know, and, and some of y'all are like, Bishop, you're crazy. I'm not talking about like child abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about godly discipline, Amen. But here's the thing. God talks about that. But you know what? This is where I'm going to discipline my kids. Hold on a second. What's right? You got to look at the standard of scripture, right? We got to look at what the Bible teaches. But here is what happens. 
This secular humanistic thinking is being, is, being, uh, is being promoted and projected and taught even in our school systems, different places being taught. They, they want us to believe a certain way. That's what they want. They want us to become desensitized to the truth. Now, why is this important? Because they teach tolerance for everyone except those who believe the gospel. You hear what I'm saying? Tolerate everyone except those who say that there's only one way. See, we talk about the gospel. Here's why you can't, you, you can't be tolerant of the gospel. Because the gospel comes in, the first thing it teaches is what? One true God. Wait a minute, there's many gods. No, the gospel says there's one God. Right? Then the Bible teaches what? That one true God, he is holy, he is just, he is righteous. He has certain standards. Then the Bible teaches the second thing in the gospel, and it is that we are all what? Sinners. We, are, we, we all have desires and passions and wants. There's things that are inside of us that are opposed to God. Well, they teach something different. Those desires, those are natural. So you should be able to operate within them or you should be able to enjoy or indulge in those things that are natural to you. God calls those things sinful. And then the Bible says that because of those sins, you are separated from God. Because of those sins of omission, those things that you don't do that you should do, all those sins of commission, those things that you do that you know are not pleasing to God, those sins separate us from God. But if we worship God any way that we want, you know, we're not separated from him. But those natural desires separate you from God. So then it tells us this other thing that they really don't want to hear. That there is one solution because here's the reality. The reality is that while this God is righteous and holy and he is a just God, he is also a God of love. He doesn't want to send people to hell. I I want you to get that. He doesn't want to send people to hell. God says in his word, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Are you hearing that? He does not. He is not happy when a wicked person dies in their sin. He is not happy sentencing some, someone to an eternity in hell. God is not happy doing that. So what does he do? Does he say, well, you know what? As long as you worship me your way and you try, it's all good. Is that what he says? No, he does not say that. But see, secular humanism wants you to believe that. You just worship it. And that's even if they want you to or allow you to believe in God, whatever the case may be. But here is the reality. The reality is the gospel says that you're separated from God and you're eternally condemned unless the love of God intervenes. That's the beautiful part of this. The love of God intervenes because God is not just holy. He is not just righteous. He is not just just, but he is also loving. He is merciful. He is kind. And and, and as he doesn't enjoy the death of the wicked, what he does is he comes into this earth in the form of a man called the son of God and he comes and dies in our place. This is what the gospel, they don't want you to hear. They they, they don't want you to believe this because you don't need Jesus. Listen, if God is not one, if God is not holy, if you are not sinful, then there's no judgment. You don't need Jesus. The fact is, all of these things are true. And so the question is, what decision have you made concerning Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Because Jesus dies for what? So that we can have eternal life. Jesus dies, so that, that, that identity we talked about earlier, so we can have a new identity. That's what Jesus does. He dies in our place. He gives us a new identity, and he offers us that. The question again is, do I put my faith in him and my trust in him, or do I trust my own self? Do I trust my own ability? 
The gospel teaches this. Hear this, church. The gospel teaches love and acceptance of all. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't be walking around condemning people to hell. We shouldn't be walking around being nasty. We shouldn't be walking around with signs up and all this kind of crazy. We should not be doing that. We should be preaching the gospel in truth and in love. We should be communicating the gospel to our co-workers, communicating the gospel to, 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 for those of you that are in school, to those other students in school. We should be communicating the gospel in love to our neighbors. That's what we should be doing. That's what the church should be doing. We should be overwhelmed by the gospel and the truth of what Jesus has done for us. Because the Bible teaches, the gospel shows us to love and accept all, yet it teaches there is only one way to salvation. And what that does is this. This is why they're tolerant of everyone except us. Because when there is a declaration that there is only one way to salvation, it makes all other religions inferior in their efforts to reach God. That's what it says. And that sounds really harsh, but that's the truth of the word of God. There was a separation because of Jesus that says, look, there is one way, and that is him. You can choose him or you can choose the other ways. While the word of God promises us certain things will inevitably happen. I said this. The Bible talks about this one world religion. It talks about this one world government. It talks about a one world currency. It talks about that. That's going to happen. When that's going to happen, that's what I don't know. That's what you don't know. That's what we are not sure of. And so the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to just sit by and just chill and just be like, you know what? We're going to do our thing and we'll just, you know, hopefully, you know, all this happens and, you know, we're going to go be with Jesus. Is that the mindset that we should have? I don't think that should be the mindset that we should have. The Bible gives us some instructions. And in your question outline, it, put, it points you to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it talks about how we should pray for our leaders. And so this is what I believe is, is wholeheartedly in the heart of God for us. And especially when we're talking about political leaders. And I really could care less about what your political party affiliation is and all that kind of stuff. This is what I believe a biblical Christian should be doing. And I, and I encourage you to do this. Is that we should pray for political leaders who will rise up, who will truly truly fear God not 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 fear God but no that will truly fear God that will truly fear him and that will not be swayed by the lobbyists with anti-biblical agendas that's what we need to pray for in the leaders in our nation we need to pray for people who are not swayed well you know what if we don't change this position then you know we're never going to be able to we're not looking for people like that we need godly people who will fear him and will trust him and you know what the bible tells us it tells us to pray for those who are in authority it says to pray for them for what so that way they so, so that way god's revelation of his son can be manifested in the lives of people that's what the Bible teaches. And so for us, don't just sit back and just wait for all this stuff to culminate, but allow yourself to be a person who intercedes and prays that God will raise up godly leaders in this nation. Amen? Amen. Second thing, repeat this after me. Say, persistence in prayer, prayer. should be our response, be our response. To, hardship. to hardship. Let's read verse 5 here. We know in verses 1 through 4, Herod had already killed James. James has been murdered, and now he sees that it pleases the Jews. And so what he does, he arrests Peter. And what he's going to do, he's not just arresting Peter just to arrest Peter. He's arresting Peter because he's going to kill Peter. Because remember, Peter has been the voice piece for the church up until this point. He has been the main vehicle that the gospel has been being preached through. He's been the main one. He's been arrested a couple of times already, and he continues to proclaim the gospel. And so if it pleased the Jews that they killed James 
who's one of the other apostles. How much more is it going to please them if they kill Peter? And so they arrested him. They locked him up. They put him in, in, in these guards. And in, in, in between all of, these, all of these guards, they have like a, a certain groups. There's like four at a time that come. Two of them stand outside. And then two of the guards stand inside, chained to Peter to make sure. The reason why there's so much security is because you remember Peter in a couple of chapters earlier? Remember he got out of jail and no one knew how it happened? So what he was doing was he was saying, you know what, I'm going to make sure that he doesn't get out of jail this time. We're going to make sure that he's got four soldiers to him. He's going to be locked up to two of them, and two of them are going to watch the door. So we're going to make sure there's no way that this guy's getting out this time. He's going to suffer. And verse 5 says this. It says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but, say but. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound in two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and, and he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. So he, went out of the, so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that led to the city, which opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel." And has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But when they said to her, you are beside yourself... And this is amazing. This is like a, 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 the most amazing prayer meeting, right? Like they're in there praying, seeking God. Rhoda goes out there. She's so excited. Leaves Peter out there by the door. They're praying for his deliverance the whole time. She comes in there and tells him, Peter's at the door. They're like, oh, you're beside yourself. What kind of faith anyway? I'm just saying, what, what kind of faith is going on in this place, right? Like they have faith, but they're like not expecting God to move so quickly on, on, in the situation. So, so we go on and he says there in verse 16, he says, now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand he, to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Our response to hardship is indicative of our understanding and our faith in the gospel. The first thing I said here is that our, our response to hardship should be what? should be prayer. It should be consistent prayer. And what happens is when, whenever we are, I mean, look at the situation that occurs here, just, just their situation. The first thing that happened is James is killed. James is killed. Then Peter is arrested. He's in prison. And what does the church do? The church begins to pray. The church begins to pray. And what does Peter do? He goes to sleep. 
Now, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if you, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we don't really like think about it and think about what's really happening here. But I want you to, I want you to think for a moment. Peter, this is Peter. He's going into jail. I don't know about you. Have you ever had something that's just like on your heart, on your mind, something you're worried about, right? Not dying, just, you know, you're worried about something. Like the next day, you got a whole bunch of stuff you got to do at work and you just can't sleep the night before. Anybody ever happen to anyone in here? Raise your hand just real quick. Okay. Peter went to, went to bed, locked up between two guards knowing that he's about to die, okay? That's how he went to bed. How many of y'all be able to sleep like that? None of us. All of us would be like, all night, we'd be there, so uncomfortable. We can't really toss and turn because we're locked up. Hello, right? And so we would be in a bath. This guy is knocked out. He's knocked out to the degree that while the angel is walking him out, he's not even realizing. He thinks he's having a dream. This is how knocked out Peter was. Now, 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 why do I say that? Because, he, because we are not able to go through situations like this and experience the peace and the joy and whatever it was that he was experiencing. Because I can tell you right now, there had to be some serious peace for him to fall asleep like that. There had to be a serious understanding of what the gospel declared in order for him to be able to trust to the point that he is so knocked out that the angel has to strike him on the side like, dude, wake up. And so what happens to us is this, is that our hope in the gospel, our trust in the gospel will inform our behavior. What does the church do? James is killed, Peter's arrested, and they don't go and start running. What do they do? They go and run to Jesus together. They go and they run to Jesus and they begin to pray. They begin to seek God's face. They begin to cry out to God. And the Bible makes it clear, they're crying out for Peter. They're praying for Peter. What are they praying? They're praying for Peter according to the gospel that they understand. They're praying for Peter for protection, for peace. They're praying for Peter that God would be merciful and spare him. They are lifting up their petition. The Bible says that when they prayed, that they prayed consistently. That word, that word consistently means that they prayed intensely with an end in mind. They weren't just up there just like yelling out. No, they were intensely praying, believing the word of God, believing God for what he's able to do. That is how they were crying out. And see, here is the issue with this, is that for too many people, prayer is a response to trouble or hardship when prayer should be a daily, moment-by-moment walk with Jesus that intensifies as situations arise but doesn't disappear when life is good. What happens to us is it's, it's good that we respond to God when we go through hardship and that we cry out to him and we begin to pray. The issue is when I haven't prayed for six months because everything has been okay. And then all of a sudden, I enter into this situation. This hardship comes my way, whatever it may be, and I am ill-prepared. Then my faith becomes tested because what? Because I haven't been seeking God. Because I have not been walking with him. And at the end, I'm going to ask you a question about your prayer life as you'll see it there in your outline. But here's the thing. I'm going to give you some points to help you to grow in a gospel-centered prayer life. The third thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Persecution plus persistent prayer will bring gospel advancement. Look with me at verse 18. It says, Then as soon as it was day... There was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. 
Verse 20 says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of, the, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand is that this was the worst day of Herod's life. Listen, this chapter starts off. It shows Herod. He's advancing his kingdom. He's like, he's like, you know what? I'm earning the favor of the Jewish people right now. He's doing all of this stuff. Everything seems great. In this part of the chapter, he's on this murderous rampage. Just before this, he does what? He kills the guards that were guarding Peter because he couldn't believe the story. And so what happened in those days was whenever you're, when you were guarding a prisoner, what, if, if that prisoner escaped, then whatever was going to be the destiny of that prisoner, you would experience. So if the prisoner was going to be beaten, you would be beaten. If the prisoner was going to be killed, you would be killed. That's what happened here. He kills them, he goes down to Caesarea, and then, and then he, he has this issue with these other people, and you know, his, again, we see the whole political stuff playing out here, and you know, they come, they get, it, they get his attention, and so these people are trying to earn his favor, because they need him. They're not trusting God as provider, they need his help. And so what do they do? They start blowing up his ego the best way they can. The voice of a God, not of a man. The voice of a God, not of a man. And you know what he's doing? Every time they're saying that, he's going like this more and more before he's like, you know, He-Man or something. I don't know. Right? He's, I, he, he's so puffed up. And the Bible says that immediately an angel strikes him. And the scripture says that worms ate him. Now, I want to break that down for you because, you, you know, you might, I, don't, I don't know about you, but when I picture it, I'm like, man, that like a mountain of worms just like jump on top of him and just start eating him up. I don't, know, I don't know what you picture, but that's what I picture. So I had to do a little bit more study. I'm like, man, do worms eat people like <laughs> Just saying. I'm just, I'm, I'm, maybe it was a, a supernatural. It could have been a supernatural worm. But here's what happens. It could have been. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. He can create a worm big enough to swallow us. I mean, it's, it's all good. But here's the thing. That's not what happened here. What happened here was the Bible, the, the Bible tells us this part. But when you go into the actual history, you know, secular history, I told you about that last week, I think, and you look at Josephus, what Josephus says is that he died five days later from some kind of intestinal thing. And so worms, you know, now y'all know parasites, right? They can eat, though those are intense parasites. <laughs> and that man died five days later. And what was the reason? It wasn't because they were chanting his name. It wasn't even because he had killed James. It wasn't because, it was because he did not give glory to God. He didn't recognize, I am not God. I am not provider. God is God. He is provider. He did not recognize that. And so what we see is, in the beginning of this chapter, we see Herod advancing his kingdom in opposition to the everlasting kingdom. And in the end, we see, we see God crushing his opposition. 
This should encourage us as a church because while God doesn't destroy every person, I mean, you can go back into history and you can see that every person that was wicked and did wicked things, God did not destroy them the same way or in the same time frame as he did with Herod. But here is the truth. The truth is that we can trust God when we are being mistreated. We can trust God when hardship comes in our life, especially when it comes from leaders. We can trust him that he is still good and that he is still in control. And verses in your Bible will show you how you should respond to those type of difficulties and situations. Here is the beauty of this, is that while Herod was on this murderous rampage, God is still moving. And I love the recap that Luke gives in verse 24. It says, but in spite of everything, in spite of everything that you've read, in spite of everything that you've seen, but... The word of God grew and multiplied, even in the midst. And you want to know what? It wasn't just that God's word grew all by itself. God's word grew in and through the church. It grew in and through believers. And so it is imperative for us that no matter what we may be going through in our lives, that we realize that the gospel is greater than whatever we may be facing, whatever opposition we, we, we might face. And we must continue forward as soldiers in this battle, as ambassadors for the kingdom, and as those who are called to be salt and light in this earth. Amen? Here's my closing question because this is the big point of this chapter for me. When I read this chapter, the thing that stands out the most is the response of the people of God to the opposition that they faced. It wasn't complaining. It wasn't crying. It wasn't murmuring. And listen, we all go through those moments, so please don't be condemned. That is not the goal here, okay? We all go through those moments when our flesh gets the best of us, and we don't simply run to Jesus and cry out to him as we ought to. But here is the point. The point is the example that is in the scriptures. The example in the scriptures of what the church did. What did they do? They ran to him in prayer, and we see the results of prayer and what occurred because this church fervently sought God. And so my question for you this morning or this afternoon is this, are you devoted to a gospel-centered prayer life? Are you devoted to a gospel-centered prayer life? A prayer life that is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. A prayer life that is rooted in what God declares that he has done and what God declares he is able to do. Have you, do you have that prayer life? Are you rooted in that? And how do I know if I have this gospel-centered prayer life? The second part of the question is where do you need to grow? And I'm going to go through a couple of things really quickly here. You can write them down and think about this. The first thing is this. If I have a gospel-centered prayer life, that means that I have a daily dependence on Jesus for his grace. How does that occur? This is the question. Do you have a daily time that you get together with Jesus? And listen, that's real practical, but I want you to know something. If I asked you to raise your hands in here and you were honest, you would be surprised how many people would honestly say, I don't have a daily prayer time. I think about God every day. That's what most people would say. I think about him every day. I'm constantly praying throughout my day. That's not what I asked you. Because you're supposed to think about him all day. You're supposed to constantly pray throughout your day. But my question is, do you separate time for you and him to commune? I've come to the conclusion, you should not start your day without having prepared yourself for that day. For some of you, I'm going to tell you right now, that's going to mean you're going to have to get up early. Hello, somebody. You're going to have to stop hitting the snooze button or start the snoozing earlier, glory to God. One of the two has got to happen. But the fact is, you need a time with Jesus. 
And, and listen, if you're one of those people that you got, because there are some people that, you know, you get up at like 3 o'clock in the morning, got to be at work at 4.30, then you know what you need to do? I'm going to tell you when your prayer time needs to be. Before you go to bed, you need to have some extended time in worship and preparing yourself for that next day. So that way on your way to work, you just worship with Jesus. But you're preparing yourself for what you're going to face. That's what I'm telling you. So there needs to be a time every day that you spend with him. If you don't, then you, then you don't, then you, look, you can say all day long that you depend on Jesus, but if you're not spending time with him, you really don't. That's like you saying, I depend on food, but you never eat. I need food, really. When do you eat? I don't. You're not going to live very long. I don't know why we don't, I don't know why we don't equate that with spirituality as well. If we don't spend time with him. So the first thing is, we have to have a daily, daily time with Jesus. The second thing is, daily rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. I love Jesus' prayer example when he tells his disciples. He tells them, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When you think about the names of God and you think about all that God is, all of this, I mean, if you just go through a few of them, like Jehovah Sidkenu, that's one of the names of God. And what it means is the Lord, my righteousness. When you begin to celebrate that name, what you are doing is you are celebrating the finished work of Jesus. When you have, and listen, I'm, I'm talking to you right now about what happens in your prayer time. Because Jesus didn't say, start repenting of sin. That isn't what he said. We'll get to the repentance of sin in a moment. He said, start with worship. Start. Don't, don't start because here's what will happen. You come to Jesus and you feel like, I got all my sin out of my way. Now I can talk to him. He said, no. I already dealt with your sin on the cross. Talk to me. Worship me. Honor me. Get to know who I am. Revel in that. He's not saying ignore sin. Not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't feel like you need to fix your sin before you can talk to me. I already fixed your sin on the cross. That's what he's saying. So he says, worship. So do you do that? I mean, do you, do you really think about and revel in the finished work of Jesus? Do you really, in that time that you have with him? Then we get to the point where I talk about daily petitioning and you, or, or daily prayer for the saints. Because there's two groups of people that we should be praying for. We talk about them in here when we, when we welcome our guests and we welcome everyone. And it's the ones that know Jesus and the ones that don't know Jesus, right? And so we should be praying. The Bible talks about us praying. Paul says that he prayed for the salvation of Israel, those that didn't know God. He prayed for their salvation. But he also goes on to say in the book of Ephesians, he says to pray for him, to make intercession for the saints. And so we should be petitioning God. We should be praying one for another. We should not just be praying just about my situation. And listen, I'm going to say this and don't get offended. It's not just my little situation. And your situation may be huge, but in the scope of things, it is little. In the scope of everything, it is small. There is so much more than just my little life. Seriously. There is so much more than just little old me. And what happens to us is we get so caught up with our problems and our issues that we never have time to think outside of ourselves, especially in the place place of prayer. And here is the truth. The truth is gospel-centered praying, if you're not praying for others, then you're not gospel-centered. Because God doesn't just want you thinking about yourself. Look at Jesus in his hour of most intense anguish. Who is he praying for in John chapter 17? He prays to the Father. Father, I've glorified you, now glorify me. He says that. Then he prays for his disciples. Then he prays for us. That's what he does. So I'm not telling you not to pray for yourself. What I'm saying is you need to make sure that you do spend time praying, not just for yourself, praying for others. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well, it tells you to pray for what? Those who are leaders and pray for all men. That's what the Bible says. 
praying that they would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. So it's daily dependence upon Jesus for for his grace in in a daily time of prayer. And in that time, having a time of rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus, having a time where you are praying and interceding for the lost and praying and interceding for the saints and for the advancement of the kingdom. And then we come to the third one, which is a daily repentance, which is a recognition. And listen, I'm not saying you got to have a laundry list of sins or anything like that. What I am saying is that none of us, in light of God's holiness, have arrived at the place of perfection therefore that means that i have a place to repent every day that's all it means it means that i come to god and i recognize that man maybe i didn't share the gospel with someone that i should have maybe i didn't love my wife the way that i should have maybe i didn't do maybe i don't know maybe i dishonored you maybe a thought came into my mind that's what happens when i come before him sometimes i can tell you straight up i don't necessarily have a laundry list of things that i can go over but i can recognize god i know that i've fallen short of your glory in some way And I acknowledge that before you. And I humble myself. And God is not beating me up about it at all. But more than anything else, I tie it in with what he says. Because he says, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have sinned against us. I love that. Because I think about those who sin against me, whether it's in one day, whether it's a month ago, whenever it was, have I really forgiven them? I come before him and that humility. I come before him with that heart and that mindset. And so I have that daily dependence on Jesus daily rejoicing in him, daily intercession and prayer for others, daily repentance of sin. And then the last thing that I'll add in here, and for those of you that went through gospel transformation with us, we learned something. It was called Lectio Divina, and that's in your your outline. And what that is, that is the spiritual reading of the scriptures. And so when you come into prayer, it's not a monologue, right? It's supposed to be a dialogue. In other words, it's not just you laying down your laundry list of your needs and your petitions. That's all good. But my question to you is, when do you listen to Jesus? When do you listen to God speak to you? It should be in that time. So what I'm saying is, that that time that you have to separate with God, you need to make sure there's enough time for you to talk and enough time for him to talk. Are you hearing me? You need to make sure that it's enough time to get in with him. And so what does it mean? Well, well, I'm going to break this down for and it's going to be really quickly. The first one is Lectio, which means to read the word of God slowly. To sit down and read. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible declare on whatever particular topic, whatever scripture you're in? That's what Lectio means. That's the, and, and, and where this comes from, this is the way that, they, that, that in the old days, this is how they taught people to read the Bible. It wasn't just read it just so you can know some things. No. It was to sit down and to read it. Read it slowly. Think about what it's saying. And then the next part is, the th- is meditation, which you know what that is, right? That's meditation. And that means to really meditate upon the word, to meditate upon, upon what is being said there. So it's not just reading it slowly now, but it's meditating on it. It's mulling it over in your mind and in your heart. It's repeating it to yourself and thinking, okay, how did, and getting to that point where you're going to get to the next one, which is Horatio. And Horatio means to pray the word of God. And we talk about Horatio. Horatio can be praying to God, like talking to him like, God, you know, this word says this, and I don't see this in my life. And it can be something that you're struggling with. It can be a battle that you're having because, God, you've declared these promises, but I'm not seeing it. Or it can simply be a rejoicing in those things. It can be a place of repentance. Whatever the Spirit of God leads you, but it's learning to pray out the Scriptures. And then the last part is contemplation, which you would think it means to contemplate, but that's not it. Contemplation is not just thinking about how you can do it, but it is actually committing yourself to living out the Word. Because out of my communication with God, there should come the revelation of who he is and his will for my life. And then there should come the application. 
And so my question was this, are you a person who, is a God, who has a gospel-centered prayer life, and where do you need to grow? Maybe it's, maybe it's in meditating on the Word of God. I don't know where it is. But this is why prayer becomes so important, because you saw what happened in the book of Acts here. James is killed. Peter's incarcerated. The church begins to pray, and God liberates Peter. God does something amazing. And not just the liberation of Peter, but at the end, but the word of God grew and multiplied. This is why this is so important for us. One of the key elements to the advancement of the gospel throughout the book of Acts in any truthful record of church history is a church that is prayerful and power-filled. And this all culminates around our devotion to the gospel. This is the truth. If we want to see the glory of God, I thank God for what he's doing. I thank God for every one of you that is here. I thank God because I know God is doing amazing things in our days. He's, he's doing amazing things in us. But here's what I know. If we want to see the glory of God continue to manifest, if we want to see the glory of God continue to move forward and his kingdom continue to be manifested, then we need to be those people that are devoted to prayer the same way that we see throughout the book, the book of Acts and we see throughout church history. Amen? Stand to your feet, please. Let me pray with you. grab your neighbor's hand please and let's pray together heavenly father we are grateful today we are grateful today for your love toward us we are grateful today for your mercy that you have shown us in this place And Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord God, today that you would awaken within us, Lord God, a deeper devotion to prayer, my God. A deeper devotion to seeking you on a daily basis, my Lord. A deeper devotion to corporate prayer, my Lord. Heavenly Father, a deeper devotion to serving you faithfully, my God. As your word calls us into that devotion that begins in a daily recognition of who you are, my God. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place, Lord God. Some of them are going through hardships in their life, my God. Some of them are facing difficult situations, some of the most difficult situations they have ever faced, my God. I just lift them before you right now, and I pray that you would strengthen them with your grace, Lord God. I pray that you would give them peace, which surpasses all understanding. I pray that you would glorify your name within their lives, and that you, Lord God, would empower them, Heavenly Father, to serve you faithfully my God father I pray that you would strengthen those in this place my Lord that may be going through persecution because of your word heavenly father those who have stood up firmly and boldly for the gospel Lord God in their workplaces in their neighborhoods even in their schools Heavenly Father, and that they have been outcast, they have been rejected, Heavenly Father. I just pray for them today, Lord God, that you would give them grace, that you would give them strength, that you would give them peace to stay the course, my God, that you would empower them, Lord, to move forward in your plans and your purposes for their lives. God, that they would not cower to the pressures of persecution, but that your glory would be manifested in a greater measure through their lives. And Holy Spirit, I do pray today for those in this place who do not know you. My God, I pray that you would draw their hearts unto you. I pray that you would reveal to them, Lord God, their need for you. I pray that you would open their eyes, that they would recognize how lost they are without you. I pray that they would put their faith and their trust in you today, my God, that they would turn from their sin unto your saving love, my God, that their lives would be changed and that your glory would be manifested, my God. 
Father, I pray for us as a church, my Lord, that we would continue to go forward in the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would continue to go forward in your wisdom and your grace, that we would continue to go forward, Lord God, burdened with what burdens your heart, caring to see your glory fill this earth and lives change, my God. Help us to be disciples, Lord God, faithful. I pray this in Jesus' good name.